science story, huh? Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week we'll bring you two stories about scientists who reach points of crisis, whether in their career or their personal lives. Our first story this week is from Rayshawn Ray. It was recorded in May 2017 at Busboys and Poets 5th and K in Washington, D.C. The theme of the night was risk. I'm a sociologist. As a sociologist, I study why we think what we think, why we feel what we feel, and why we do what we do. Over the past 15 years, I've done research on men's treatment of women and the ways we might prevent sexual assault and rape and violence against women. I've done research on the experiences of undergraduate and graduate students at universities and how their experiences with their advisors vary by race and gender. Um, When I was at UC Berkeley, I did research on physical activity and obesity and uh, actually exploring race, gender, and class differences as it relates to the middle class. However, all of that changed for me last summer. And it had kind of been building up. And so I was on my way to, uh, to a park that I go run at. On Mondays, I go on my 30 minute Monday runs after I've eaten stuff with my kids that I probably shouldn't eat over the weekend. And I get out at the park and go for a run. Well, as I was on my way to the park, I was walking to the park, I received a text message from one of my colleagues and closest friends, Dr. Keon Gilbert, who is a professor at St. Louis Louis University. He's been at the center of what's been happening in Ferguson with the killing of Michael Brown uh, by Officer Darren Wilson. And he sends me a video link, and the link didn't work. And then he sends me another link. And I'm like, this link is defunct. What are you trying to send me? And he said, it's the killing of Philando Castile. Philando Castile was killed in Minnesota. He was pulled over for a routine traffic violation, for a broken taillight. The officer asked him for his ID. Philando, per law, said that I have a concealed weapon and I have a permit for it. Seven bullets were fired into the vehicle. Philando was killed. And as I'm watching this video at the park, It made me think about other killings that unfortunately have become all too common, whether that be Jonathan Farrell in North Carolina, whether that be Oscar Grant in Oakland, whether that be Freddie Gray in Baltimore, whether that be Laquan McDonald in Chicago, whether that be John Crawford III in Cleveland. Made me think about all of these different cases, Eric Garner in New York, Abadou Diallo, And what it had me thinking is that taxpayers have spent over $40 million paying out for wrongful death suits, but rarely are police officers ever charged, prosecuted, or convicted for these wrongful deaths. Also thought about my own life and how how Philando could have been one of my friends, could have been one of my relatives, could have been me. I've been pulled over over 30 times in my life by the police. I've been thrown up against the wall, thrown on the ground. I've been arrested. I've had to go to court, and I don't have a criminal record. And I have a PhD, and I work at one of the top universities in the country. But you know what? That shouldn't even matter. Because unfortunately, watching that video, it just crystallized for me that our blackness becomes weaponized. And despite the fact that violent crime has significantly decreased over the past two decades, even though when I watch the news, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so bad out there. I have to protect my kids. And then I actually go look at the data and I see that violent crime is almost at an all-time low that it's been over the past 50 years. 
But the problem is that police killings, police killing citizens has significantly increased over that same time period. What's even more troubling is that according to FBI data, what we know is that blacks are 3.5 times more likely to be killed by the police. And then these data actually show, these are police reports, that, uh, that blacks are actually less likely to be attacking a police officer or have a weapon at the time that they're killed. This means that whites are actually less likely to be killed by the police when they're attacking an officer or when they have a weapon on them. And so all of these things are running through my head when I'm watching the video, but see, that's not even what made that video unique on that sunny day. What made the video unique was that it was actually being uh, recorded and uploaded to Facebook Live by a third party. And that third party was narrating the video as it was going along. And that third party was Diamond Reynolds, who was Philando Castile's girlfriend. She was pulled out of the car. She was handcuffed. She was thrown on the ground. She was put in the back seat of a police car. She was never charged. Philando was never charged again. It was a moving violation, which is not a criminal offense, even though I found out later that the officer, Officer Yanez, who ended up being charged with second degree manslaughter and is currently on trial, actually pulled Philando over for having a wide nose that fit the description of a robbery suspect. But when he approached the vehicle, he didn't even approach the vehicle as if it was a robbery suspect. These are the way these kind of things play out. So I'm looking at this video, listening to Diamond Reynolds yell out to God, Lord, please save him. Lord, please don't let him die. And I'm looking at Philando Castile's bloody body as he is gasping for his last breath. And then I hear a faint voice say, Mommy, don't cry, I'm here. Mommy, don't cry, I'm here. And it was at that moment as tears are running down my eyes at the part that I'm forever changed. Because the person who said those words was Diamond Reynolds' four-year-old daughter. And I thought, wow, her innocence is forever taken. And it made me think about Kareem Gaines in Baltimore who was killed in her home by police and her five-year-old son was shot by police. And I remember reading a report afterwards that said, the five-year-old is expected to make a full recovery. In what world do we live in? Where a five-year-old is shot by the police, sees his mother killed by the police, and we expect that that child is going to make a full recovery, even if physical wounds heal, emotional and mental wounds will persist. And all of this came to his head for me because at the time I had a four and a five year old and all I could do was think about the time when my kids wanted to go outside in the backyard and play with a Nerf gun and my wife and I had to look at each other and then unfortunately tell them no because just months before, 12 year old Tamir Rice was killed in a park with a toy gun in Cleveland. That is my reality. And so I'm sitting at this park and I'm like, as an academic, I'm not doing enough. I, I thought I was making a change in the world. I'm contributing to society. I mean, I'm doing this for pure research sake. I mean, when you're an academic, you're supposed to do it for the knowledge. That's it. And I realized that that wasn't enough anymore. So I had to start engaging in risky science because see, when you're an academic, you don't get rewarded for doing any type of public research. But instead I had to step out and make a decision that that was what I had to do. So I made a commitment to do three things. First, I decided to start disseminating all my research publicly. I created a website, RayshawnRay.com, where people can get all of the research that I've published and some of, some of the research that my colleagues are publishing and make it public. 
The second thing I did that I committed to sitting there watching that video is I was literally in mourning for Philando, for myself, for individuals who are similar to us, is I decided to create a vlog called The Daily Thought. And every week I post a video, I linked all of my social media accounts, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and my handle Sociologist Ray, and I disseminate a video, a short video, about what's happening in society. Everything from the rise of Trump to the fall of Clinton to why we need to pay attention to the Dakota Access Pipeline and Native Americans, why Colin Kaepernick's protest is something that we need to pay attention to as it relates to the First Amendment. The other thing I did was I figured out ways to help sociologists better disseminate research. As a sociologist, I'm pretty good at doing research. Unfortunately, we aren't trained to disseminate information. So I decided to be one of the co-editors of Context Magazine, along with Dr. Fabio Rojas, who's a professor at Indiana University. This is a quarterly magazine sponsored by the American Sociological Association. And what we've committed to doing is for the next three years, we're gonna have yearly symposium on Capitol Hill where we can tell policymakers about what sociologists have to say about everything from climate change and the environment to education, healthcare, and even race and policing. The third thing I did was I committed to working with police departments to help change police culture and also do implicit bias training. As a social psychologist, what I realized is that implicit bias I learned on the first day of a class I took. It's the first thing I teach when I teach a social psychology class. It's simply the associations, unconscious associations, that we make between two seemingly unrelated objects, like um, which store has the best, best fruit? Is it Whole Foods or your local store? Well, per my five-year-old, 7-Elevens have the best donuts. <laughs> I do know that for a fact. And so what we committed to doing was is doing implicit bias training with police officers. By the end of 2018, we will have conducted implicit bias training with all 1,800 officers in Prince George's County. And we are bringing those officers to the University of Maryland for a college experience day. And these aren't normal lectures. Instead, what we do is we engage them with computer scientists and, and, and theater performers where we have social experiments, virtual reality simulations, dramaturgical performances to help them discover, acknowledge, realize, and reduce their own implicit biases. Because see, all of us have implicit biases. And it's only when we acknowledge that they exist that we can actually do something about it. The other thing, we are evaluating their body-worn camera program. Myself and my colleague, Dr. Chris Marsh, who is a professor at the University of Maryland, we're actually running an experiment where we have 100 officers who have body-worn cameras, 100 officers who don't. We are comparing their outcomes, use of force, harassment claims, positive interactions with citizens. Because at the end of the day, police officers are putting their lives on the line, and citizens might also be putting themselves at risk because implicit bias goes wrong. So I gathered myself together that day, and I went to pick up my kids from school. And I could then look my kids and their friends in the eyes, knowing that I was doing everything to keep them safe, to help protect their innocence, and to also aim to make sure that their race, social class, gender, or sexual orientation would not be used against them in interactions with the police. Because, see, that day my purpose crystallized. And see, when your purpose crystallizes, it becomes very uncomfortable. It's difficult to deal with. And what you have to do is you have to step outside of your comfort zone and aim to use your skill set for doing something greater. And that's what I committed to doing that day by engaging in risky science to step, step outside of the ivory tower to actually try to make a change in the world and keep kids safe. Thank you.
that was Rayshawn Ray. Rayshawn is an associate professor of sociology, the Edward McKay Johnson Jr. Endowed Faculty Fellow and co-director of the Critical Race Initiative at the University of Maryland College Park. Formerly, Ray was a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Research Scholar at the University of California, Berkeley. He has published over 40 books, articles, book chapters, and op-eds, and currently, he is the co-investigator of a study examining implicit bias, body-worn cameras, and police-citizen interactions with 1,800 police officers with the Prince George's County Police Department. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. This week's podcast is brought to you by Casper. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Supportive memory foams create an award-winning sleep service with just the right sink and just the right bounce. And you can try it for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. There's free shipping and returns to the United States and Canada. With over 20,000 reviews and an average rating of 4.8 stars, it's quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Now you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash storycollider and using offer code STORYCOLLIDER. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back. Our second story today is from Marcelo Ardon Ciao. It was recorded in June 2017 at Motorco Music Hall in Durham, North Carolina. The show was produced in partnership with the North Carolina State Leadership in Public Science Cluster and the Duke Initiative for Science and Society, with support from the Burroughs Welcome Fund, the North Carolina Science Festival, the North Carolina State College of Sciences, and the North Carolina College of Humanities and Social Sciences. The theme of that night was New Frontiers. So that morning in October 2012, I had promised myself I wouldn't swear. But when the doctor said small cell neuroendocrine cervical cancer, I swore. Now, I don't swear very often, so my wife got worried. I swore because as a scientist and as a nerd, I had spent most of the previous night reading the technical literature, reading scientific papers about the different kinds of cervical cancer that we thought my wife might have. And of those that I read about, small cell cervical cancer was the worst one. It's a very aggressive form of cancer. It's very rare. And according to the papers, my wife Erin had about a 10% chance of living five years after diagnosis. Now, my wife Erin is an amazing woman. She was an accomplished uh, horseman jumper. Um, She graduated at the top of her class from Cornell. She did her dissertation research hugging trees in Costa Rica. Yes, she's a professional tree hugger. She learned how to salsa dance in Costa Rica, and when she dances, she doesn't just dance, it's more like she glides over the dance floor. Um, She's fought off vampire bats that were attacking her students, and she uh, gave birth to our daughter without taking any pain meds. Um, We have a very good separation of duties in our marriage, so Erin is in charge of the small day-to-day decisions, so she decides what we have for dinner, even though I'm usually the one who cooks. She decides uh, what Netflix show we're gonna binge on next. I'm in charge of the important, the long-term decisions. So we've been married for 11 years, and we haven't had an important long-term decision come up yet, but I know one, I know one will. 
So Erin has an amazing capacity of forming lifelong friends everywhere she goes, and, and, and those friends have, have been important. So um, that, um, we were both ecologists trying to uh, balance life and academic careers. And things started getting weird around March of 2012, soon after we found out that Erin was pregnant with our second child. That pregnancy was not like the previous pregnancy. She kept having pains and she kept having bleeding and the doctors and the midwives didn't really know what was going on. And then we had this weird prenatal test results. So we were excited to use these new cutting edge technology, non-invasive second generation sequencing tests that all it required was a blood test for, from Aaron to see if there were any genetic problems with our developing son. And the test came back saying that there were two chromosomal abnormalities, which meant that the baby was not viable. So they did the test again, and again they came up with these chromosomal abnormalities. So they did another test, and they put this really big needle in Aaron's belly, and then those tests showed that everything was normal. So the doctors decided that they, they didn't know what was up with those, those results. Erin, being the smart cookie that she is, thought that maybe having abnormal DNA floating through her bloodstream could indicate that she had cancer. And she told me, maybe I have cancer. At the time, it was, it, it was such a weird thing to think about. Erin had always been healthy. She always ate right. She always exercised. The thought of her having cancer was just such a remote possibility that I didn't think that was the case. So I said, no, that, that can't be. And, and we told the doctors, and the doctors said, no, 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 we, we just don't understand these genetic tests yet. Well, Erin was right. If there was ever a time that I wish she had been right, it was this one. And those doctors actually wrote a paper later on about using these prenatal tests as a way to detect metastatic cancer. So our son, Jax, was born in October 2012. And the birth was magical. It was beautiful. After all those months of uncertainty and bleeding and pain, um, then the birth went through with no problems and Jax came out and, and he's beautiful and I swear he was smiling and, and he's still smiling now and he's kept on smiling this whole time. But then that night the pain meds wore off and all the pains that Aaron had been having came back with a vengeance. And so they did all these tests and an MRI and Erin is claustrophobic, so she didn't like that tunnel. And uh, we had doctors coming in and out of our room as we were trying to get to know our newborn son. And they told us that they had found tumors in Erin's pelvis. And the pain had uh, gotten so bad two weeks earlier because she had actually fractured her pelvis just sitting writing thank you notes with our daughter after her third birthday party. This is why I don't write thank you notes. <laughs> so um, after we got the diagnosis, Aaron started doing chemo and radiation treatments. If you've never been to a chemo infusion room, one of the cancer survivors we met along the way described it best. She said it's a lot like a party. You have comfy chairs, you have music, you have snacks, and you have drugs, lots of drugs. But the mood is a little different there. 
When Erin learned of all the treatments she was gonna have to undergo, her first concern was not that she was gonna lose her hair or the nausea or whether or not she was gonna be able to tolerate all these treatments. Her first concern was that she wasn't gonna be able to breastfeed our son, Jax. So being the go-getter that she is, she got on Facebook, she got on email, she called people, and before we knew it, we had a chest freezer full of donated breast milk, and Jax was able to breastfeed till he was almost one. Or bottled breastfeed. <laughs> so that night when they told us the, the small cell uh, results, I went back to the literature, reading the papers, and, and, and I got scared. It was scary to read about the poor prognosis and the low uh, cancer survival rates, cancer-specific survival rates, and that the average patient only lived to one, one or two years at most after a diagnosis. But as I sat there thinking about those papers and those results, I started seeing a glimmer of hope. All of those numbers were about average patient and average people. And as you've heard already, Erin is not average. So I knew that she had a good chance to fight this. She, had, she was very healthy before all of this started. Um, she had good access to very good medical care. She had insurance to pay for this very uh, good medical care. And she had a positive attitude all things that are important for um, cancer survival. Um, reading the papers was also helpful to make sure that the doctors were recommending the treatments that we were reading about, because Aaron's health is too important for us to just leave it up to the doctors. So, so even though this science knowledge gave me courage and gave me some hope, it still didn't quite let me understand or, or fully comprehend what was going on. Science is a very powerful friend, but it's not a very nurturing friend. Having grown up in Costa Rica, religion has always been a part of my life. Costa Rica is a predominantly dominant uh, Catholic country, and I attended 13 years of Catholic school. And so while I wasn't one that would attend church every Sunday, I always prayed at night. But those first few nights after the diagnosis, I had a hard time praying. I was mad. Why would a God, a benevolent God, let this happen to us, to our family? So right around that time, I started reading about mindful meditation. And while I never did it according to the way they say to do it, the spending an hour or however a day, I would only spend five or 10 minutes every day, and particularly before bed, and just sitting there focusing on breath and focusing on that anger and those questions, and rather than trying to answer them and just letting them sit there, somehow it made them lose their power. And so around that time, I also started saying uh, the prayer of St. Francis, or peace prayer. Now, I had repeated that prayer every morning during the 13 years of Catholic school, and at that time, it didn't mean much. But it's a beautiful prayer, and it's a beautiful prayer for caregivers. It's about seeking to understand those around you as opposed, seeking, as opposed to seeking to be understood. It's about bringing hope where there is despair, about bringing light where there is darkness, about bringing joy where there is darkness. And saying that prayer right before going to sleep always helped me go to sleep and helped me get through those long, long nights. 
Now the past four and a half years, the cancer has gone and come back numerous times. Aaron is still undergoing chemo treatment and teaching five college courses. With grace and courage, she keeps moving on and I do my best to support her and support our little kids. Our family has been vital in supporting us through all of this, but so have our friends and scientists that, and uh, people that we've met along the way. We've re received everything from donated breast milk to rides to meals, and all these groups of people have been amazing in, in supporting us. I don't know if my prayers have helped Aaron directly. I don't know if the prayers of all of our friends and scientists' friends have helped Aaron directly. But I do know that Aaron is still here. I know that science and religion have both been important coping mechanisms for me. Both have given me hope when hope was hard to find. There's a lot that's been said about science and religion being opposites. I think they're complementary. And I think we need them both. Our family needs them both as we face cancer every day. So we keep reading papers, we keep praying, we dance, we laugh, we love, and I try not to swear at doctor's appointments. Thank you. That was Marcelo Ardoin Seyau. Marcelo is really into swamps. As an assistant professor in the Department of Forestry and Environmental Resources at North Carolina State University, his research focuses on how wetlands and streams transport and transform water and nutrients. He spends most of his time outside work with his wife and two kids. They enjoy dancing, building sandcastles, and spending time outside, though he hasn't fully convinced his kids of the beauty of swamps. If you enjoyed today's story or a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon.com. If you sign up to donate $10 a month or more, we'll list your name in our show programs across the country. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker, with help from our many vendors and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Shane Hanlon and Aaron Barker. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Busboys and Poets and to Motorco Music Hall for hosting these shows, as well as to our sponsors at North Carolina State and Duke, especially Holly Menninger for her support, and to everyone out there doing life-saving work, whether it's in the hospital, the lab, the field, or the office. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.